Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that humans shed about 600,000 particles of skin every hour, which adds up to about a pound and a half per year. By the time you turn 70, if you're average, you'll have lost about 105 pounds of skin. Uh, Not only is that kind of gross, it's also a good reason for you to consider eating some collagen so you can replenish that skin and keep it healthy. What if there was a way to level up your energy get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's interview is with Dr. Rakesh Patel. Rocky, as he's known, is a bulletproof physician. His practice focus is in the prevention, early detection, and treatment of diabetes and heart attack. He really knows what he's talking about. He's lost over 85 pounds practicing what he preaches, and he's going to be one of the speakers at the upcoming Bulletproof Conference, Biohack Your Life. If you haven't heard about the Bulletproof Conference is coming up January 17th, 18th, and 19th in San Francisco. Now's the time to check it out by going to the blog at bulletproofexec.com. We're going to have two days of hands-on biohacking 
where we actually bring a professional trainer with $100,000 worth of equipment who's going to connect his equipment to your nervous system and actually work with you to repattern the way you move and actually change the way your nervous system and your brain interact. It's stuff that I've done. It's stuff pro athletes spend 50,000 plus per year in order to do to themselves. On the final day, we're going to have guys like Rocky come and give a series of lectures as well as a lot of lectures from me about the latest in biohacking topics, along with a bunch of hands-on things like neurofeedback, heart rate variability. You'll hear from some of the leaders in the field and you'll get to actually touch the stuff and play with it. It's going to be awesome. And after today's interview, you'll see how awesome Rocky is and what a good speaker he's going to be. We follow that up with some listener Q&A, where today we're going to talk about the best way to measure your current health how to manage your health information, and how to hack your memory and learning. As always, we'll close with our biohacker report. Today, you're going to hear about sleep hacking and Brazil nuts. All right, Alexis, what biohacks have you been working on so far today? Well, this week I've been taking it easy in the biohacking department because I was in a car accident last week. Some guy rear-ended me and I have whiplash. Not fun. So I'm using some bulletproof techniques to help myself recover faster. I'm getting extra sleep. I'm using turmeric and ginger. I'm taking vitamin C and collagen. And my main focus is on reducing inflammation. I'm also eating more fat and protein, and I've increased my bulletproof coffee intake to help combat some of the concentration issues that sometimes come with headaches and neck pain. The cool thing is, two years ago when I was in an accident like this, while I wasn't injured last time, psychologically I was way more shaken up than this time. And I think I was able to stay calmer in this situation this time because of using the M-Wave and meditation over the last year. What about you, Dave? What biohacks have you been working on? Well, first, we've got to talk about whiplash just for a minute. I think it will be hooking up sometime in the next week. The second time I had whiplash, I bought a $5,000 medical laser that's used post-surgery to calm nervous system inflammation, and it fixed my whiplash in six days. I think I'll be dropping that laser in my backpack before I catch a flight down there to SFO, Alexis, so I'll bring that to you, and we'll see if a little bit of... uh, more interesting biohacking can help you out. That would be great. I'd love it. Um, And I would love, I'm so looking forward to your talk at the Humanity Plus conference. I think it's going to be a really cool conference. I'm, I'm excited. Some of the transhumanism stuff is frankly scary. You're never going to see me cutting my legs off to replace them with things that let me run faster, which is where some of the transhumanists go. But a lot of this is just, you know, how do you turn on all of the capabilities that are built into your body? And that's really what I'm all about. Like, I, I think, why do you need to upgrade yourself with electronic technology until you've at least upgraded your operating system and your nervous system is doing all it's capable of doing. Like there's just so much room for improvement. Like how could I not go to that conference? Totally. So, so from a biohacking perspective this week, I've been playing around with one of those spiky mats that you sleep on. It's basically like the old yogis who sleep on a bed of nails. This thing has hundreds of super sharp, like if you rubbed a head of cabbage against it, you'd get coleslaw like that sharp spikes. And it, it sounds incredibly masochistic, but I bought it on a whim and it's a little foam rolly mat with these hard spiky things on it. And you lay down on it and it hurts like hell. It really hurts. And then you just breathe into it. And after about 30 seconds, you kind of relax in this strange way. And then you get really deep sleep. So I actually go to sleep on this mat now laying on my back. 
And then about a half hour later, I wake up and I'm like, I've had enough. And I just like toss the med out of bed and I get like really deep sleep the rest of the night. It's really refreshing in a way that's kind of shocking, to be honest. So I'll be quantifying that and writing it up in a post, but it, it's been way more successful than I would have expected. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right. Now we've got our exclusive interview with Rocky Patel. Today we've got Dr. Rakesh Patel, known as Rocky, on the show. He's what you could call a bulletproof physician. He's a family physician whose practice is focused on the prevention, early detection, and treatment of diabetes and heart attack. He really knows his stuff. We've been talking on Twitter and on the phone for the past almost year. Dr. Patel lost over 85 pounds practicing what he preaches, and he uses the Bulletproof Diet in treating patients in his practice who are at risk or patients who already have diabetes or cardiovascular disease. What's particularly cool about Rocky is that he's the chief medical officer for Heart Fit for Duty, which provides similar services to first responders. These are guys like firefighters and police officers who are particularly in need of bulletproof principles. They need more resilience and they live in a high stress world and they need to be able to deal with that better. And for those of you who've seen my post about Wellness FX in Arizona, Rocky's a Wellness FX practitioner and his family medical practice is based in Gilbert, Arizona. Rocky, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's an honor. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on the show, uh, Rocky. Seriously, I, I love what you what you send out on Twitter occasionally, how you have these amazing results with patients in really short order, which is really what this is all about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing, uh, my own journey and how it's really led me to helping the patients that come through my door. Um, and, you know, it is basically completely opposite of everything you've basically been told as a medical doctor. So that's the ironic thing about it. So, so, and it, it is a journey because there's just so much um, stuff to wade through. Um, and it's hard enough for me. I can't imagine how it is for the average Joe on the street to, to kind of go through all that stuff and sift through all that stuff and try to figure it out. So, you know, it's, it's funny when patients come through my door, um, you know, I, I, I kind of drop these knowledge bombs on them and they're just kind of looking at me in two ways. One of them is, thank God you told me this stuff. And the other look could be the look of dismay or like I'm like the evil scientist. So it, it goes both ways. But when patients listen, um, it's crazy how soon um, and how quickly they feel better. And obviously everything else gets better after that. So, so I, I get a lot of feedback from people who are skeptical of Bulletproof diet or even just paleo diets in general. And they're saying, why would you advocate eating more red meat, more saturated fat? But really, this stuff works, and it works really, really quickly. Can you tell me from your doctor's perspective about some of the science behind why maybe eating more saturated fat or red meat might be good for you? You know, I think, first of all, I think we have to take a look at the current recommendations, you know, and, and really our current recommendations for nutrition aren't really based on a lot of science. I mean, I think a lot of it is based on policy. I think we've, I think people who listen to your podcast and follow the paleo followings know of the works of Gary Tobbs and, and Tom Naughton and, 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 and all these other people in the low carb world that, you know, I think we've been sold a, a damaged bill of goods. 
and it's really making our, our society sicker. So what's the alternative? Well, you know, we've been vilifying saturated fat for, what, 30, 40 years now, and, um, you know, it deserves some attention. I mean, I think if you look at the science, at least patients coming through my door, you know, I think that saturated fat and cholesterol, these are kind of the innocent bystanders at the scene of the crime. And so I, I think that um, there are a lot of good qualities to eating, you know, certain saturated fats and red meat from certain cows. And, and, <laughs> but, but, and, and those are things that we, you know, talk to patients about. But I think it's baby steps. You know, we, we live in the real world and we need to really kind of um, get people on board first and then try to look at food quality as a second thing. A lot of people are ready to go and, and, and take the bull by the horns and, and do it right away. But, I mean, if we look at the literature, um, you know, the, the – the, the reason for not eating saturated fat is at best suspect. And, and, and you know, obviously, if you look at the literature, um, we know that, for example, let's take good cholesterol or HDL. You know, doctors have a hard time getting patients to move their HDL. It's exquisitely, or it's exquisitely difficult to do. Um, we know that weight loss makes the biggest move in HDL, but what makes even a bigger movement is increase of fat consumption, you know, especially saturated fat. So you have these kind of oxymorons from a layman's standpoint, but when you look at the science, these things make a big difference. And you know, we, we can throw things like you know niacin or B3 at people and make them you know have a lot of side effects and maybe get a 20% increase in their good cholesterol, or we can adjust their diet, add a little bit more fat, or add a little bit you know quality red meat and get a 50% increase in their good cholesterol. And, and, and it's probably a lot more fun to eat some quality steak than it is to take niacin and flush, you know, for the whole night. <laughs> um, it, I always found it interesting that the only saturated fat that we really manufacture inside our body is is palmitic acid. Like, like our bodies seems wouldn't evolve in order to only make fats that are toxic to us as part of our biological operations. That, that always struck me as just weird when people made the argument that we should eat no saturated fat. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the quality fats we're eating as well, I mean, for example, I mean, you take a look at the fats that are in coconut oil or MCT oil or maybe the fat that is in bacon. I mean, you know, these are things that sometimes get actually modulated in our body to a very healthy fat. I mean, if you look at stearic acid, that gets converted to a monounsaturated fat. We have been harping, you know, we harp on our patients how these monounsaturated fats are good for us. Yet we vilify eating bacon, you know. So from a, just from a common sense standpoint, you know, sometimes you have to scratch your head and say, what are we doing here, you know? Um, but again, um, and, and I'll, t I'll come back to the MCT. If you look at MCTs, you know, there are actually products now on the market that are, are available by prescription um, that will be used in Alzheimer's dementia. And so we know that, you know, we have got that, that, that power problem in the brain when you get Alzheimer's dementia. And we know that MCTs and ketone bodies tend to help make the work, make the brain work better. Mm -hmm. And so in science, you know, science has known this for a while. You know, now big pharma is kind of coming around and creating products that they can sell for, you know, 700 times more than what a bottle of coconut oil, you know, it costs you and, and are marketing this now for an alternative add-on adjunct treatment to, you know, dementia. Have you so, seen? Um, you know, so, you know, the, the science is there. It's just that, um, you know, we, we've kind of vilified it for such a long time that, you know, if you tell a lie long enough, it becomes a truth, right? Have you seen my new 100% pure pharmaceutical grade MCT oil, the bulletproof stuff. You know, I got two bottles of it about three weeks ago. So. Nice. Yeah. And, and it's so one I, of those... I, I use it pretty much every day um, in my coffees. 
you know, and I was getting this stuff beforehand. I think they had the the, the other product as well. So actually, uh, there's a coffee shop uh, right across from where I live um, that I usually I usually take a walk in the morning. So I'll go take my walk, sit down, have a nice cup of coffee. And uh, I've been trying to get them to get bulletproof coffee on the menu. So I actually brought them a bottle of the MCT oil they could keep on the shelf. So at least when I come in, um, they can blend it for me. So. <laughs> Good stuff, though. I mean, uh, it, it, you know, when when I when I started first following you on Twitter, I don't know over a year ago, probably, and I had my first cup of the bulletproof coffee. It was like a like you say, it is a religious experience. It, it's pretty amazing, <laughs> you know. And in a way, people I describe it to people, it, it's it's almost it, it, well, it is it is a pharmacological effect, right? The blues are bluer, the reds are redder. You you concentrate better, you can focus better. Um, you're more productive, and, and that's just just doing the coffee, right? I mean, uh, yeah. So that that blend of fat and caffeine is pretty amazing. And 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 I, you know, what we do for patients is we're all trying to adjust their diet, and so we use uh, some simple software apps that are free, they're available, and and they can basically follow what I eat. So if they want to be my friend, they friend me on this app, and then because you know the biggest question they ask me, hey, Doctor Patel, what are you eating? You know, you've done so well. I go, well, you know, sign up for the app. It's free. And then friend me on there. And then you can look at my log. My, my, my diary is open to the public. So I just give them my username and then they can follow me. And, and it gives them a chance to kind of, you know, kind of get on board with what we're doing. What, um, what is, but yeah, I, what I love is that? using MCT oil. I actually been cooking with it as well. So it's kind of nice. Oh, beautiful. What's the app? I'm sure that listeners would just love to know what that is. Uh, it's my fitness pal. So oh, you can okay. either go uh, on your iPad, your Android phone, or your iPhone. It's uh, myfitnesspal.com online. Um, so if you got, if you don't have a, a, a advanced phone, like many of my patients, they can go on their computer and sign up for free. There's a small. You know, Twist to it though, because you gotta put your your age and your weight and your goal weight, and then they spit out these um, these uh, numbers: the number of calories, the number of carbs, the number of fat. And so we just tell patients to ignore all that stuff. But it's a great <laughs> tracking application, and then we'll just say, okay, look at your carbohydrate count, and that's what we're gonna go shoot for, and, and don't worry about the calories. And that's the other thing that patients get, you know, really kind of uh, flipped out about. What I don't I don't count calories. No, uh, we don't count calories. <laughs> we, we count carbohydrates. And then we will then adjust their, their fat and protein macronutrient depending on how they're feeling and what they're doing based on activity. So it makes it really easy. It's so easy to use. Their, their directory of foods in there is so in-depth. Almost anybody, everything you eat is in there. And they've got a nice little barcode scanner. So if you don't find it in there and what you have, it has a barcode on it. You just scan the barcode, brings it right in. Actually, I, I scanned the, uh, I've scanned the Bulletproof Cocoa and the Cocoa Butter and it came pop right up. So right uh, even on. if it's a newer product, they usually have it in there. So. Oh, that's super cool. I, I think I'm going to experiment with that and uh, maybe do the same thing you're doing where people can see what I eat because I get yeah. that question a lot, like, what am I supposed to eat? I'm like, well, butter, coffee, vegetables, yeah. meat. It's not that hard, but maybe <laughs> maybe showing them will make it easier. Yeah, and it's free. You know, People like free. Free is good. Yeah. So, uh, and and it, it actually um, helps me stay connected to my patients as well because and if they want to really – and again, it's all about are you ready to make that change? Have you had your come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak? And for those that are there – you know, it makes it a little bit easier for them to, to to reach out to me, and and I get so many you know I get so many train wrecks coming through my door that is they really need some handholding, and you know obviously uh, in a busy medical practice it's really difficult to do, um, but this is something that you know I'm on every day, hundred times a day, and so it's easy for me to click on real quick and between patients and track putting a log in my my lunch or whatever it is, and if someone messages me and then I, I can answer them right back, so. Yeah, right. it's pretty. It's a really cool tool, tool, and, and like I said, free is good. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you know if people want to see what you know their doctor eats, 
there is no more powerful thing there. And I, I'm going to piss off a few people here, but honestly, it's hard for me to trust a fat nutritionist or a fat physician unless they can tell me I have a tumor on my thyroid or my pituitary that's causing this weight gain. <laughs> like they don't know something they need to know. And if they say, oh, it's just because I'm not good at following my own advice, that means uh, basically that should be a red flag for everyone. So the fact is, once you got into this, you realized I can control my own body. And now the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there and say, this is what I eat, this is what I do, this is what works for me. I really, I respect the heck out of that. Like there's, there's no better way to put your money where your mouth is than you know, to live it. Well, you know, I was one of those fat doctors 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, for, and for me, you know, I'm a soccer player. My come to Jesus moment was I was on the soccer pitch and I was playing against kids who were probably 10 or 15 years younger than me. I wasn't able to keep up with them. And I'm like, I wasn't ready to kind of capitulate to the over 35 league, right? So so I, I had to do something. That was kind of my, as, as, as petty as that is, you know, I have, this, I have a very large, strong family history for heart disease. Everybody in my family is diabetic. I mean, I, I tell my Asian patients, you take an Asian, you put them in the American li lifestyle or you put them in the standard American diet, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. And I was actually going down that road. So, and it, and it wasn't easy because like you said, I, I mean, I tried everything you think of. I did the Weight Watchers and counted mm -hmm. the points. I did the South Beach diet. I, you know, I, I tried all these different things and all they really led to was a little bit of weight gain with a rebound, which is probably even worse metabolically. So, yeah. um, you know, what got me going was actually I had read a book, uh, I know circa 2005. There's a guy named, uh, it was actually an author, it was a cardiovascular surgeon in Palm Springs. His name is Dr. Stephen Gundry. Uh, Dr. Gundry has a book called the Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. So he looked at, you know, diet from an evolutionary standpoint and for me, you know, I was an anthropology zoology major in undergrad, so it struck a key right off the bat. And that's kind of why I'm kind of attracted to the paleo movement as well. I mean, I, I learned about this in undergrad and looked at the fossils and, you know, look at the fossil record and, and did all this stuff. So, you know, I, I actually went into his program and, you know, I had, you know, I, at maximum density, I was probably running around 260 on a five foot 10 frame. And I had whittled my way down to about 220, 215, but it was just kicking and screaming all the way down, right? And it was not fun. I was always hungry. You know, I was crabby. It just, it just didn't, it's just why, it was, it was just torture. And so, um, I, I, you know, I started Stephen's program and, um, you know, within a month I was down 12 pounds. You know, one of the things that I found though is I was still having some issues. And as I read more about eating more fat in my diet, I felt better when I did it. And so um, I kept on reading all as much stuff I can absorb. But, you know, I read good calories, bad calories, went through most of all the paleo books that are out there right now. And, you know, really um, came down to, you know, reducing carbohydrate, increasing fat intake was the key, you know, to, to make things palatable, you know, so I could be sane, you know, that's really the hard, the easy, the, the hard part is trying to remain sane when you're trying to diet or at least yeah. change your lifestyle. We don't like to use diet, right? That's a four letter word. You got to change your <laughs> lifestyle. So, um, and then I think I just got into Twitter maybe a year and a half, two years ago and, and, and found you, I'm not sure how you came up, but I started following you and you mentioned this Bulletproof Coffee and you started, it was just, I think right as you started getting your blog going and, yeah. and I started looking at all this stuff, I'm like, you know, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I'll give it a go. You know, we will all do anything for weight loss, right? I mean, yeah. I, I kind of joke that a lot of my female patients will do anything to lose weight. You could get, you could tell them a chocolate covered turd on a, on a stick will help them lose weight. <laughs> they'll eat it. And I was kind of the same way. You know, we, the, the fat, inner fat person in me is always like that. You'll try anything. So, yeah. but it, it really comes down to, you know, nutrition first and then all the add-ons. You know, and everybody's looking for all the add-ons first and doing the nutrition second. That's really the key that you had to kind of stress. I mean, I look at, you know, when we try to um, rearrange somebody's diet, you know, you look at a car engine, you know, you can either replace the engine and get more horsepower 
or you can add a chip to the current engine and get a five additional horsepower. Yeah. And so everybody kind of comes to me and says, well, did you see Dr. Oz and he had this on there? Or I read about this, you know, f- you know, free thing that you can send for. And, you know, there might be some validity, all these little things, but these are all like chips added into your car. They give you four horsepower. You really have to, you know, change your nutrition first to change your engine out. Then you'll get the maximum benefit of changing, you know, adding that chip into the car, whether it be using, you know, MCT oil or green coffee bean extract or whatever the supplement du jour is that that's being, you know, pro- promoted online or on TV. So, you know, that's really the hard part to tra- people to kind of see that 50,000 foot, you know, view first. Then you can focus on that minutia. It's it's the right way to think about food from a, a bulletproof perspective, for sure. I ended up starting out differently than the paleo community when I started building this diet. I'm like, what's the human body made out of? Mostly water and then protein and fat and a small amount of mineral and less than 1% carb. So I, I kind of just did the, the very basic mechanical reasoning that said, maybe I should eat a higher protein diet with enough fat to support the brain and all. But then I realized I actually care more about brain function and healthy hormones than I do about, you know, even muscles. So I'm going to up the fats. And then all of a sudden you get this huge mental boost that's almost unbelievable how quickly it happens when you get the right fats in the right proportions. And lo and behold, that diet, with the exception of some of the toxin avoidance things I do, it's pretty close to the traditional paleo or ancestral diet. And it makes sense. You know, it's kind of neat that two different approaches, like a bio, a biochemistry-based one, as well as an evolutionary one, arrive at something that's really in the same ballpark. Yeah, I definitely would agree. And you know, I think that the um, it's interesting. You know, you have to have perspective of what the goal is too. Like you mentioned, you know, is it going to be cognitive function? Is it going to be performance? Is it going to be um, your recreational activity that you want to improve? So I, I think the one thing that sometimes people get stared astray to is that they they lose sight of what their goal is. You know, have your goal first, and then target that goal with what you're going to do. And if you you know, because a lot of times you know you may have several goals that you have and you know, the way you eat may have a positive or negative effect on one of the secondary goals. So, you know, I think you have to keep that in perspective. If, if our goal is to make you not diabetic, then let's do that first. And then once we get there, then we can then adjust things to say, be better on the, you know, be better in your activity of a recreation that you like. So again, you know, people try to do multiple things at one time and, you know, it may be too simplistic for you of thinking, but let's look at your, your initial goal. Let's, what's what's the what's our what's our finish line here, and then from that we'll take our baby steps to get to that point. That's the right way to think from the perspective of every healing professional I know who who's really had great results. That they follow that algorithm. I, I love the way you just explained that. Let, let's talk a bit about diabetes. I mean, I was diagnosed as being pre-diabetic uh, 12, 13 years ago. And you certainly were dealing with that. Can you talk about the difference between pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetes and maybe even whether you think Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes? Well, you know, diabetes is a, a disease of insulin resistance. Your body cannot use the insulin that it's making. And so what happens is your, your pancreas has to actually produce more insulin to produce the same reduction in blood sugar in the, in the bloodstream. And so what will happen is you'll get to a point um, where your pancreas is just work, it gets worked so hard and gets whipped so much by, by the, the resistance that it just gives up. And it says, you know, I can't do this anymore. And it will then start decreasing the amount of insulin it can produce. And once that decrease in insulin occurs, blood sugars start to go up. 
And then if it goes up high enough, which would be a fasting of greater than 126 or a two-hour postprandial after meal blood sugar of greater than 200, then we would call that type 2 diabetes. The wrinkle in this is, is that the process of that pancreas burning out starts 20 to 25 years before you become type 2 diabetic. So this diagnosis of type 2 diabetes at, at these arbitrary blood sugar values is completely a, a, a line drawn in the sand arbitrarily. And so, you know, prediabetes would be blood sugars a fast, you know, between like 100 and 125 or postprandial after meal sugars between, you know, between 140 and 200. But, you know, we know that this is a this disease process of insulin resistance is a spectrum of disease. It is not, oh, you're not type 2 diabetic one day and now you're type 2 diabetic. It doesn't work that way. And that's how most people think about it. You know, thank God I'm not type 2 diabetic. I'm like, yeah, but you're prediabetic. It's it's one and the same essentially. Yes, there are patients who will remain pre-diabetic who never progress to type 2 diabetes, but the biochemistry underlying the chronic disease illnesses that are associated with it continue to progress. So for me, it's just an arbitrary line in the sand, whether you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, and it's a matter of probably glucose disposal. You're, you know, you're able to handle your sugar when you're pre-diabetic, but it's completely off the tracks when you're diabetic. And, and so you can actually detect pre-diabetes long before um, you actually see any blood, you know, any, any signs of diabetes. And it's, it's such a simple test. That's the crazy thing about it. You know, it doesn't cost very much money. It's, it's a $5 test. You do a one-hour postprandial glucose. There was a published paper in 2010. The author, uh, actually the group was Ralph DeFonso's group out of Baylor. He's one of the leading diabetes, diabetologists in the country. They, they looked at the um, uh, patients. I think they were from the, like the San Antonio and the Botnia heart study. So it was about 8,000 patients. And all these patients got two or glucolas. And then what they found was that patients that had a one-hour postprandial greater than 125 had uh, were consistent, was consistent with insulin resistance. And if that one-hour sugar was greater than 150, you were 13 times more likely to be diabetic in the next eight years. Okay, and this is a one-hour sugar. And the interesting thing about the study was it didn't matter what your fasting sugar was, didn't matter what your two-hour postprandial sugar was. Meaning you could have a normal fasting sugar, a normal two-hour sugar. But if your one-hour sugar was high, it conveyed the same risk. And so now you have a test that you can actually do and detect risk 20 years before you might be in that situation or a type 2 diabetic. Now, now just, and oh, by the way, it's a finger stick. You, yeah. know? <laughs> so you can just, go to the drugstore and buy a glucometer and test yourself at home. And we, we kind of call it, sometimes we call it the IHOP test. You know, go, you know, go get a glucometer, you know, and we have them, you know, we are, we have many of these in our office. We hand them out to our patients, you know, they, they, they can use them. And we say, go, here's a glucometer, go to IHOP, all right, and just eat whatever you want. You know, order pancakes and all the good stuff that you normally eat, and then wait an hour and do a finger stick and see what your finger stick is. And if you know you're, if you're above 125, you know, you know you need to come back in and do some more advanced testing and take a look at that. Um, we don't have a lot of people taking us up on that offer because what we usually do in our office is we do two-hour glucose tolerance tests on everybody. And um, we also include a one-hour blood sugar so that we can take a look at that one-hour window. Um, and, but it is that- this continuum of risk that we continue to deal with. And, you know, I talk to other providers and other physicians and I tell them, look, I'd say that 80% of patients coming through my door that I test are insulin resistant and they think I'm overestimating the problem. And I don't think I am. <laughs> so, you know, yes, I'm, I'm selecting a, uh, it's, it's a selective population come to me, but I, I got all comers, you know, people who look thin and people who are overweight. I'm testing everybody. 
and it's it's very rare that I get a normal test. So the test in your office, you're giving them 100 grams of glucose in water, something like uh, that? 75 gram Charlotte challenge. Okay, 75 grams of glucose in water and then a two hour. So people who want to buy a $25 blood glucose meter at Walgreens or any other drugstore without a prescription could do the same test at home if they buy some glucose, or they could do the IHOP test, which is yeah. basically just eat eat some crappy sugar stuff. By the way, don't eat gluten. It's going to stick with you for a long time. If you're already bulletproof, you'll want it again the next day. Eat some other kind of sugar. Yeah, you make it bulletproof, then let's do some sweet potato or some white rice. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, lo- load up on the stuff, put some honey on there if you want, even some white sugar, that's fine. But you know, just don't get a grain involved other than white rice. But the idea is you're going to see what's going to happen here. I know because I've had a blood glucose meter since 1996 uh, that sometimes within five or 10 minutes after meals, you get a really big spike. And I've seen some writing about very short term spikes and what those mean. Have you looked at that in your practice at all? Do you measure it? Do you pay attention to it? You know, that becomes a little more difficult to do just because, like I said, we're they're coming in for a blood draw for the two-hour glucose challenge. challenge. Um, we do actually have a continuous glucose monitoring um, device in our office. So, you know, for our type 1 diabetics and for our type 2 diabetics that aren't well controlled, we actually will offer to put them on the device. It's like a size of a half dollar and we stick it on their back and it basically checks your blood sugar every five minutes for up to – actually, we can do it for up to seven days in a row, but usually we'll do it for a three-day window and, and then we'll look at that. I haven't actually looked at the correlation between how fast the rises in these patients. Most of these patients that were doing the tests on, they're pretty sick. Um, so they're usually going to be high anyways. Um, but that'd be an interesting thing to look at. Maybe I'll throw it back on. I've, you know, I, I, like every six or 12 months, I'll throw it on me and then see how I do and then how I respond. And so maybe that's something I should look at myself when I, when I next time I throw it on me. But I haven't really looked at that. But we do know, you know, one thing we do know is that, you know, postprandial lipemia, meaning how high do your triglycerides go in a non-fasting state is associated with risk. So one of the things that what we'll also do as a trick is a lot of our lipid panels are done non-fasting. So if patients come in and they're really they're really anal about getting their lipids done fasting, and if they're not fasting, I'll say, don't worry about it. Let's draw it anyways because if they just had lunch or they just had breakfast, and then I can look at their, their, their triglyceride level in a non-fasting state and see how bad it is. And obviously, I would think that that, that post, post uh, you know, prandial glucose and that postprandial triglyceride spike would probably correlate. Interesting. Wow. See, so I, I'm not sure how many of our podcast listeners are following all this, but the bottom line is, wow, what happens right after you put carbs or even fat and protein into your body is highly indicative of what's going to happen to you 20 years later. And you can measure this stuff with basically under 50 bucks worth of gear. And uh, Rocky, if I wanted to get one of those things that measures my blood glucose uh, every uh, is this a glucose monitor or an insulin monitor? By the way, the, the every five minute guy. It is a continuous glucose is monitoring glucose. device. Okay. Um, the one we have in our office is made by Medtronic, and um, there's another one that's made by a company called Dexcom. I can certainly send you the links afterwards. Nice. Um, I don't know if they, you know, they're usually um, for diabetics, you know, especially type ones. It's pretty easily um, attainable through their insurance plan if they're not well controlled or if they're having issues with hypoglycemia, low blood sugar levels. Typically, we can get it pushed through. If you're type two or if you're type two and well controlled, it gets harder to do, harder to get covered. You know, they run somewhere between fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars out of pocket. 
market, um, and I don't know if they will sell directly to consumers. So that would be the other thing. I don't know how that would work out. But, those, uh, but I'll send you the links, and you can take a look at them. Okay. I'll put those up, and honestly, that's what eBay is for. You can buy anything you want medical on eBay or Craigslist. So, this is true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm actually quite certain that I'll get one of those. I've sort of fantasized about doing that for the past 15 years. I didn't realize the cost had, dro- had dropped that far, but... Uh, I'll pick one up and then I'll share it with friends and maybe coaching clients. <laughs> you know, well, you know, the Dexcom one's kind of cool because it comes with this like oval, like beeper, a little bit bigger size and a bigger um, LC screen. So it actually shows you your sugars and if they're going up or if they're going down. So you can track it right in front of you visually. The Medtronic device, unless you have an insulin pump, um, it's a static. So it just goes on your back and then we had to download it on the back end when you come back to the office. So the Dexcom one's kind of cool because you can have the monitor to go with it and then you can actually see it on the fly, which is kind of cool. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm so getting that. All right. Dexcom <laughs> it is. I'm going to have a new – it's like putting a new gauge on your car to show you, you know, pressure in the engine or something. I'm going to get one of these and mount yeah. it on my glasses. All right. Love it. Let, let's move on to heart attack. So, you know, we've talked about diabetes. We know they're correlated with heart attacks. Now, what are some of the biggest myths that you hear about heart disease? Like, what do you see in your practice? And what are the biomarkers that you look at and you think people should look at for their cardiac health? So this gets really nuanced to a certain extent, but I think one of the biggest myths that, especially around the paleosphere, that you'll you'll see most often is that you know cholesterol is associated with heart attack risk, or that the cholesterol doesn't matter per se, and and so I think what we have to set straight is, is that you know when we're measuring cholesterol, we're looking at a test in most doctors' offices that is about based on forty-year-old technology, and 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 it was based on technology that was done in a completely different population and they're eating a completely different diet as well. So when you do that regular old fasting lipid panel, this technology, you know, what what other medical condition would you want to basically judge your treatment on 40-year-old technology? If you had breast cancer, would you want the 40-year-old technology or the current technology? And obviously everybody says, I want the current technology. So why are you using the 40-year-old technology for heart attack prevention? So that's the first thing. And there was interesting, there are a couple of really interesting studies that I always point out to patients that are always surprised. The first one was the inner heart study. That was published, I think, in 2004, 2006. And it was neat because they looked at over 52 countries, um, looked at patients being admitted for an acute myocardial infarction or to a, like a cardiology ward and then looked at the risk factors and what was associated with that heart attack. And so your LDLC or the LDL concentration in your blood didn't make the top nine risk factors. So that's one thing that most patients always kind of, really? Is that the case? Uh, and I say, yes, that's the case. Um, the number one risk factor was your your bad to good cholesterol ratio. Number two was smoking. So those two combined accounted for about 66% of your risk. I, I assume that most people who are following a bulletproof diet are probably not smoking cigarettes, but certainly have family members that do. And so that's another thing to, you know, again, one of the things we really work on is trying to get people to quit smoking. The other study was the uh, 2009 AHA Get to the Guidelines trial. This looked at another population going to the hospital and looked at their lipid panels. And they found that about 50% of people going to the emergency room for these symptoms had an LDL cholesterol less than 100 and had a LDL cholesterol, or 17% of them had had LDL cholesterol below 70, which in most primary care and cardiology practices would be considered optimal treatment of cholesterol. 
So those are the things to really keep in mind when we look at myths in terms of that cholesterol panel. So I think if you're going to do anything, I think it's imperative that you get some form of an advanced study. Um, it really makes a big difference. You know, you don't have to necessarily do an advanced study, especially if budget's a problem. You can look at that standard lipid panel. You take your total cholesterol, subtract your good cholesterol or HDL, and what you have left is called a non-HDL cholesterol. Probably a much better way of looking at your, your marker risk. But again, um, if you have the uh, wherewithal to get an advanced panel with some advanced biomarkers, it will exquisitely dial you in to where you need to be in terms of having, you know, looking at heart attack risk. How important is LPPLA2? Can you talk with our readers about how important that is or how not important uh, you believe it is? I'm not sure what your stance is on it. Yeah, so you know, we look at several advanced inflammatory markers. LP, PLA2, or I think it's the, the brand name is called PLAT2, it's easier to say, is one of these markers that is a basically a chemical signal that white blood cells send out, you know, telling other white blood cells that we have some areas of inflammation that we need to take care of and, 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 and we need more help. It's basically recruiting more white blood cells to the area where plaque is located. And so that is one of the one of the biomarkers we track and, and I think it is very important because it tells us I explained to the patients is that, you know, plaque two tells us how inflamed it is underneath the wall, the artery. Um, I use it as a marker of intermediate term risk. Um, HSCRP is another marker of intermediate term risk. So these don't tell me that you're acutely in a problem, you know, acutely um, at risk for having an event in the short term, but it tells us the chemical signaling that's going on in your arteries is telling us that you have active atherosclerosis going on. And obviously if that plaque that you have in the artery gets inflamed or we call it on fire, you know, if you've got hot arteries, mm -hmm. that means you could have that plaque rupture, which will then cause the event. You know, that's the other myth that, that you know, we think of, of, of heart attack as, you know, progressive blockage of the artery wall. And it's not the case, you know, 50% of patients have a blockage of their artery less than 50% when they have their event. It's the inflammation of that arterial wall that's over that plaque. And if it gets inflamed enough, it will explode like a volcano. And that event is what causes a thrombosis or blockage or blood clot at that area of rupture that causes the blockage in blood flow. Um, we look at some other near-term risk, or sorry, uh, longer-term risk of inflammation. Those two would be F2 isoprostane. This is a marker of oxidative stress. It's a urine test. And then we also look at microalbumin creatinine ratio. So this is how your kidneys are filtering protein through your blood. Basically, your kidneys are an extension of your arteries, and it acts as a filter. And so if it's not filtering properly, then you're going to have stuff leak through. And one of these things can be protein. And microscopically, these microscopic pieces of protein that you can measure in the urine can basically tells us how healthy the inner lining of your arteries are. So if you have what we call endothelial cell dysfunction or dysfunction of the inner lining of your artery wall, it's going to allow things to get through that lining like you know, um, oxidized LDL cholesterol. And so we know that's a marker of, of long-term risk. And then certainly near-term risk, that inflammatory marker would be myeloperoxidase or MPO. So if you have elevated MPO, then I'm very concerned about near-term risk of events because this is stuff that is basically secreted. It's actually it, when your white blood cell degranulates or releases MPO in the uh, subcutaneous tissue, this is how we fight infection. So it, 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 you, you find a virus or a bacteria that a white blood cell encounters, let's say in your lung, when you're fighting, fighting an upper respiratory tract infection, it releases myeloperoxidase it, gets, it actually catalyzes the production of bleach, and then that bleach obviously will help kill the organism. 
And then, and, and so when we find this in the bloodstream, this is an abnormal finding in the bloodstream. There should be never be an elevated mark amount of MPO in your bloodstream, and if there is, it's coming because you have inflamed, you know, plaques. Um, and think about pouring bleach on top of an inflamed plaque; it's not a good idea. So this would be a more near-term risk for having events. And so when I see people, we look at these far-term, intermediate-term, and near-term risks. And that would then dictate how aggressive I'm going to be with nutrition, supplementation, and medication. So if I find someone who has just you know far-term risk, I could I know I got some time here to work with them and work on their diet and and change their lifestyle. And I got a little bit more time; I could follow them for maybe six or nine months and give them a chance to work it on their own. I got someone who comes to me and they have a high LPPLA2 or a high mild peroxidase. With that, I know I'm in trouble. This patient's in trouble and at risk for having a near-term event. And so I'm going to hit them with a sledgehammer and try to get all that inflammation down while they're trying to use their nutrition to change their lifestyle. So, so this all, at, at the end of the day, comes down to if you turn down inflammation, you, you improve pretty much all of these markers, right? Both some of the diabetic ones as well as the cardio ones. Oh, definitely. You know, it's interesting. This is, they all hang out in the same gang, so to speak. When we look at root causes of heart disease, you know, we know that insulin resistance in about 80% of patients is the root cause. And then we know that also inflammation is actually a cause of atherosclerosis. We've got some papers that have been published over the last couple of years that show us that if you are inflamed, that can be a cause for laying down atherosclerosis or plaque. So, and, and I think that would probably, I, although I haven't seen a study, it's my own interpretation is it doesn't matter what your cholesterol level's at, yeah. whether it's low or high, if you're inflamed, that's a bad thing. And so definitely by addressing the, you know, this pro-inflammatory condition of insulin resistance or diabetes, you can actually then, you know, basically you're, you're treating the, the root cause and not putting a bandage over the situation. So when it comes down to reducing inflammation, other than obviously the diet, I know the Bulletproof Diet is, it was fundamentally, even at the very micro level, designed to reduce inflammation you know, by choosing oils that are less cooked, for instance, and harder to oxidize and whatnot. What are the other things you do in your practice to tell people you need to, to nail your inflammation? I mean, do you give them aspirin? Do you give them turmeric? Like, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah, and again, it, it comes to a, you know um, almost like an N equals one situation. So we look at the patient and then decide what's going to be right for them. Certainly, uh, uh, low dose aspirin is something we look at. We can look at over the counter nutritional supplementation. I kind of have a cocktail that I put patients on if they're willing to to go for this. Um, we do a combination of resveratrol, pycnogenol, grapeseed extract, and pomegranate extract. Uh, those things work really well. There are actually some small studies that show that pycnogenol can lower plaque too. Um, we'll use niacin or B3, and then, you know, then then from there it gets really nuanced in, in terms of making sure that they're getting enough omega-3s in their diet. So we definitely use fish oil um, as a supplementation or krill oil, depending on which one you want to do and what they can tolerate in stomach. Um, so those are kind of the basic yeah. add-ons. And then for patients who are in near-term risk, you know, this may be more controversial to your population, to your audience, but you know, we, we have medications that really squash inflammation. And so, you know, this, the, 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 the drug class of statins, we know, have a profound effect on inflammation. The problem is, is that, you know, you get a lot of collateral damage with using a statin. So again, you have to be you know, targeted about your approach and you have to know what your patient's willing to do in front of you 
And if they're willing to do everything, then I know I can probably, you know, minimize the dosing or maybe try without it first. But if I got a patient in front of me who's just not willing to do anything, I'm going to have to try to afford them the best protection I can. And yes, that might include using a statin-type drug. I, I, um, I we, think we also have other medications like ACE inhibitors and beta blockers that help cardiac function too. So those are things we actually will will do as an add-on as well. ACE inhibitors actually help the endothelial lining of the arteries be healthier and be less leaky. So we know that can help as well. Good for you, Rocky. And so often I get this religious, you know, drugs are bad thing. And the bottom line is drugs can, when used properly and not handed out like candy, um, they can totally save lives and they can increase your quality of life and even the, the span of life if they're not misused and you know what you're doing. So, you know, heck yeah, I'm glad you're doing that. And honestly, that's totally bulletproof. When people say, you know, I, I, I want all of my health to come from, you know, natural substances, it's like, great, then all of your toxins should come from natural substances too. And, and yeah. that's not how we live anymore. So it's totally okay. In my perspective, I, I would not want to see a physician who was unwilling to ever prescribe a prescription drug for someone who is at risk of dying when the drug's going to help them get over the short-term risk so they can fix the problem. Like, good for you. Like, that's that's biohacking the way it's supposed to be. Well, I think the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of providers, um, we're just kind of throwing you know, for a lack of a better term, shit on the wall and see what sticks. And, you know, you have to have this targeted approach. One of the things we just started doing in the office about three months ago is we're doing cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So we'll actually have a bike in our office and we'll actually put your mask on your face and measure your VO2 and VCO2, heart rate, blood pressure response. And then we can actually monitor stroke volume and cardiac output and see how you do as we increase the load. And what's really interesting is the amount of myocardial dysfunction that we see in patients who we think otherwise are doing pretty good. They feel completely normal, but they, they hit and you know, they, they go beyond their anaerobic threshold and then they get ischemic or they get dysfunction in their heart and your stroke output and you see this huge heart rate response and their stroke volume flattens out and so in those cases we know there's stuff going on yeah they may not have a blockage of their artery and yes they probably feel 100% fine but we know when they're you know these are patients that want to change their lifestyle and go and exercise and the last thing I want to do is give them an exercise program that's going to put them in that danger zone you know right off the bat so you know again we again we look at these patients at a more higher risk and then we look at medication sometimes with these patients to see if we can keep them out of that high risk zone while they're trying to correct all the other stuff and yes in the back end if we're able to take the bull by the horns and change your lifestyle i can get them off this stuff i mean that's kind of the whole goal is get people off medication that's really kind of my own my own thing but yeah. at the same same standpoint we have to make sure we have our eyes open and, and see the risk and make sure we're covering our bets so to speak i that is such a balanced approach it, it makes so much sense and uh, thanks for, for bringing that up too instead of you know doing the you know the some people on the show will just say you know focus on nutrition 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 hey nutrition rocks and and that is the goal is to be able to you know manage everything with lifestyle but man if you're about to die <laughs> like hit it with with all the machine guns you've got and then fix it yeah it's pretty crazy we had a patient come in and they had gone to the gym and you know how they had to do it. they do the vo2 max at the gym right and then mm -hmm. they give them an exercise prescription well you know, they didn't do an EKG with it. It's just a basically a plain old VO2 max. And so um, they had, a, had him at a pretty high heart rate and we put him on the bike and the heart rate they had recommended him to be actually put him in the, he was actually having um, lack of oxygen to the heart in that oh. heart rate zone. 
<laughs> so when we put them on the bike here and we do this testing, we're like, well, you know, unfortunately they didn't do your EKG with with the with the exercise testing, and they didn't look at your stroke volume and cardiac output, and the, the heart rate that they had recommended put him in a, a point where he was having this abnormal heart rate response, and it was having you know dysfunction in his heart's ability to pump blood, and we thought, you know, you should probably dial it back a little bit. <laughs> So it's interesting. You can do this testing, you know, where there's a gym or your CrossFit box or wherever it is. But I, I think it's really important you look at someone who has some experience with the testing and can look at it from a global standpoint. Yeah, it, it's worth spending, especially if, if you're not that healthy. You know, you, you've found the Bulletproof Diet, you know, you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking, I'm going to you know, go out and you know, become a super athlete, even though you're 100 pounds overweight. It's entirely possible. But, you know, if you're coming from behind, uh, like I did, it's so worth investing in seeing an expert like uh, Dr. Patel here, because if you don't do that, you can make really big mistakes that prevent your program from working or at worst, put your life in danger. So I'm I'm all over getting the data before you go hardcore. Like It's the right thing to do. Hey, another question for you, because uh, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. I know that you recently got a cerebral electrical stimulation machine. Uh, how do you like it? This is one of the things that I talk about you know, for brain stimulation and sleep quality. What are you using yours? Does it work? Like, what's the deal? Yeah, you know, I, unfortunately, I have had haven't had a lot of time to play around with it. I, I got it initially because, as a, as a small business owner, obviously there are stresses that go along with that, and I was looking at other ways of managing some of that stress. So I've used it on occasion when I feel a little bit more amped up or keyed up, and it, it just seemed to help me kind of calm me down. You know, honestly, um, my M Wave Two is the thing that probably I use more <laughs> so than anything else. Yeah, me um, too. You know, from a, from my own standpoint, sleep hasn't been too much of an issue, but certainly I, I bought it because of the uh, you know the stress and the anxiety issue of things that you know. Like I say, I cover from day to day life, but I haven't had a good enough time to play around with it. And like I say, I have like I have like three M Wave twos. I've got the, like the desktop version, and I got a couple that sit in my backpack. That I can, it's a little bit more accessible for me to kind of pull that it out for five or ten minutes, and you know, you know, get my get into the green, so to speak. Right, right. I, I suppose uh, some listeners getting into the green means something entirely different. But we're talking <laughs> about the green light here on the bullet <laughs> on the M Wave two. Um, we, I carry those on upgraded self and with the executive coaching practice uh, that I have where I, I work with real high performance people, it's like the first meeting always order one and half people, half the time they just like, Oh, they forgot. I'm like, don't forget it's 200 yeah. bucks. It's such a cheap thing in order to get all those benefits. So it's cool that, you know, you're using it to manage stress and, and I mean, have you felt the difference? Is it something you plan to continue using? Oh, definitely. I, I think it's it, it really helps me stay grounded. Um, I, I'm not. A, I, I don't know. It's hard to explain. You know, like like the bulletproof of coffee is hard to explain. It's hard to explain how you use it. How, you know, using the M2 really makes it feel. But I, I only way I can kind of uh, you know, quantify it is I feel more grounded. Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not cursing that person who cuts me off in the car. You know, in front <laughs> of me, and when I'm driving, it doesn't happen anymore. I just, I just don't. Uh, it's like you know, bounces off of me. Yeah. Um, I really, you know, when we when we talk to first responders, I mean, stress is such a huge issue, and that's one of the things we really we try to focus on on that because you know it, it's such a big part of their lifestyle, and we always try to recommend using something like an M Wave Two for them. And we've actually had some good results in a couple of the first responders that we let them borrow the RMA Twos that we have, and and we can see a difference. I mean, and and simply, like, I know we had one um, gentleman where we were having issues with blood pressure. We gave him the M Wave Two, and within two weeks, his home readings were like ten points lower. It was crazy. So yeah. this stuff works. I mean, 
It, it works and it works fast. And you probably haven't seen the study, but there's one about uh, and for military use. People who are trained to have high heart rate variability tend to get much less post-traumatic stress disorder when they see you know, really bad combat situations. So particularly in those stress populations, just having that control of your reptilian nervous system, man, it, it's, it's a huge thing. It really is. And, and you know, if, if I go back to the inner heart study that we talked about earlier, you know, psychosocial was, I think, number six on that list. It had an odds ratio of 2.5 for risk factors for having a heart attack. So, you know, people kind of, you know, poo-poo the st- whole stress issue thing, but it is a large component of people having events out there, whether you're not a first responder or not. And so, you know, that's one of the things you have to really dial in and get it under control. And, you know, we all have our lives. No one's living in utopia and, and, and it's easy to kind of slough off. But, you know, it, you got to learn how to deal with some of this stuff. It, it's true. It doesn't matter how much bulletproof coffee and MCT oil you drink. You're not bulletproof until you've learned to consciously manage uh, some of your stress response. Like, like living with unchecked stress completely destroys resilience. And when you have less resilience, you die from heart attacks and other chronic diseases. And, you know, it just doesn't work as well. And you, it's not how we're meant to be. Well, we're right at the end of the amount of time we've got allocated. But there's a question that... I ask everyone who's been on the show, what are your top three recommendations for people who want to be as powerful and high performance as they can be in all aspects of their life? So this doesn't have to be stuff we talked about at all. It can be like just top three things you could tell someone who's eager to listen and eager to kick more ass. Well, I think I'll take this from a heart attack prevention standpoint, just because that's kind of my thing, so to speak. I think the number one thing is if you don't see your dentist every six weeks, see your dentist every six weeks. You mean six months or six weeks? Plaq2 or LPPLA2. There's only one other thing that will make that enzyme go up, and that's periodontal disease and bacterial infection in the mouth. And that that inflammation or mouth does travel systemically and give you risk factor for events. And so um, if you don't see your dentist, start seeing your dentist and, and spend the 200 bucks that it does to, to go see them. If you don't have a dental insurance, you can save 30 bucks a month. makes it pretty easy to do. Um, make sure you have your dentist check your pockets, uh, pocket depths. If you've got a pocket depth greater than three millimeters, meaning the four or five, you have an issue and it needs to be taken care of. And don't let your dentist tell you, well, come back in six months and we'll check out later. If you can't make it to the dentist, Go to the dr- drugstore, buy a Sonicare toothbrush, and buy some floss, and use those things two times a day. It goes a long way, and it's not very expensive. Um, I'd say number two is optimize your vitamin D level. 95% of patients coming through my door have suboptimal vitamin D levels. This is a hormone. It needs to be followed and check it frequently. I'd say at least every quarter. And don't just go out and buy a ton of vitamin D and start taking it. We know that um, actually there's there's case reports of people getting um, when they go and they take vitamin D and they're you know they they don't have their level checked or they're not following their calcium level with this. It can uncover parathyroid hormone disorders. So um, one of the things is that if you do get a vitamin D level check, make sure they're taking a calcium level with it as well, and find that find that sweet spot for you. Typically for my patients, it's somewhere in that range of 50 to 70 is where we try to get them to. And then I think number three would be the, the thing that we just talked about was managing your stress and making sure you're getting your sleep down cold. Without that, nothing else is going to really um, – it's going to be downhill from there. And you know, I know for me, I've gotten to the point where if I'm less than six hours of sleep, I can feel it. If I'm more than nine hours of sleep, I can feel it. And if I'm that sweet spot of like seven to eight, seven to eight and a half – I'm really good to go. And so that's kind of how I make that a priority. Obviously, you know, lifestyles 
and, and our, what we do can make a difference in that. So you got to find a way how you can make it in your own life. That's a wonderful advice. Quick uh, clarification. See a dentist every six months or every six weeks? Um, typically at least twice a year. Okay. Um, it just depends on what you have going on. I think that if you if you see your dentist, and it, it should be like, I'm just talking about these regular checkups that you should be doing. So okay. it should be every six months. Did I say six weeks? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to confirm yeah. because uh, I, I was pretty sure, but man, I'll go every six weeks if you tell yeah. me to. Let's see how it does, but okay. That's no, my thinking. bad, my bad. Yeah, every six months, my, my apologies. No problem at all. Well, Rocky or uh, Dr. Rakesh Patel for people who are searching for you in Gilbert, Arizona. How can people find out more about your practice? Um, we have a website. It is www.azsun.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at drrc Patel or Dr. RC Patel. Uh, and then we also have a blog. It is at, I got to look the website up. I'm sorry. Uh, azsunfm.blogspot.com. So those are places where you can connect with me. And then if you get on my fitness pal, my Twitter handle is my username. So feel free to friend request me and uh, I will, in most cases, will reciprocate back and let you see my what I'm eating. Wonderful. Thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. And I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Hey, thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks. Bye. Now it's time for the listener Q&A. So fascinating to hear what Dr. Patel had to say about heart attacks and diabetes. Dave, you ready for the questions? You got it. The first question comes from Twitter handle Shane Stewart. What is the best way to measure one's health? What stats are most important to look at? This is actually a big question. But the short answer is the best way to measure health is to ask yourself how you feel lots of times throughout the day. If your health is not good, you will notice you don't feel very good unless you've always felt like crap, in which case you've never felt what it feels like to feel good. One of the reasons that the whole bulletproof line of thinking, the whole bulletproof diet, all that stuff works, the goal is to give you one uber day, just one day where you really feel bulletproof, like you've got boundless energy and amazing mental focus and things just fall out of the way, things that are in your way. And once you feel that, you know, like, that's what I'm capable of. That's what I want to do every day. And then you can work towards that. But if you know, you've always kind of been a mush ball, <laughs> overweight, your brain has never worked that well, you might not know what that's like. So then you really dig into the data. Your heart rate variability is a great predictor of overall mortality. It's relatively easy to get. And you should get a panel like the stuff we talked about, an advanced cardiac panel and an advanced hormone panel including things like inflammation, like C-reactive protein and homocysteine and the other markers that we just talked about with Rocky. I've been tracking stats like those for more than 10 years now. I think I started in 99 or 2000. And it is really worth doing at least once a year, especially if you're under 30, get your hormone levels at least. Because once you have those, when you're 80, you'll at least know where you were when you were 25 or 30, and you can peg your numbers when you're 80 to where they were when you were younger. So definitely get those basic blood things. You know, There's a lot of fancy stuff you can do beyond that. You don't have to. Great. That sounds awesome. The next series of questions come f comes from Jack117. Uh, he wrote his questions on blog posts on the blog post videos, epigenetics, superfoods, and 300 pounds to bulletproof. 
Jack asked several questions, but we're only going to cover a few today, and I consolidated some of them. The first one is, how do you manage your information diet? What magazines, academic journals, blogs, and newspapers do you read? And would you give recommendations, um, or do you have certain habits, or do you just go by feel? To be honest... I go by feel the vast majority of the time. I'm a fan of the low information diet. I am frankly, I've been an information junkie, like to a really unhealthy level. There was a time because I was the first guy to sell any, anything over the internet ever. Like I was an entrepreneur magazine for that in my early twenties. There was a time when I knew every website on the internet and I tried to keep up for a while. So what I learned over time there is that I don't read a lot of magazines. If I do, it's usually kind of cognitive-focused things. I don't read any academic journal regularly. It's all search engine-based. Uh, blogs, it's mostly Twitter-based. I rely on the people around me to tell me the stuff that's most important. And then I rely on my creativity and my intuition, which I've actually trained, in order to bring up interesting articles based on things that, in my mental model of health, which is kind of a 3D picture thing, uh, I say, you know, I think there might be a relationship between lipopolysaccharides and MCT oil. Let me check. So having things like Google and PubMed are terribly, terribly important. And then the other step, and this is really important, if you're into research, like hardcore into research, which some of you are, some of you aren't, there's a free service called Mendeley, M-E-N-D-E-L-E-Y. And if you download the show notes, we'll put a link in there for you. Mendeley is a free app that lets you take scientific papers and anything else and save them in one place and index them and search them. So I have a pretty stellar Mendeley reference engine when I need to look up something about what's that bizarre toxin that forms in coffee beans only in South America. I found the paper two years ago. I've still got it. Cool. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean when you say training your intuition? Well, it turns out that you can train the part of your brain they call it the, the passive mode versus active mode. So intuition happens in the passive mode. This is when your brain isn't doing something, when it isn't focused on something. There's stuff going on, but you just never remember it because most people, when they're in passive mode, don't know how to remember there. What I've done is I've trained myself in order to have a constant memory thread running when I'm in passive mode. We only proved about two years ago that this is possible. Some research at Oxford showed us that your passive mode is always on, even when you're fully paying attention, and that when we think we're not paying attention, there is some attention. It's just a matter of getting that balance down. I wrote some software, or I should say I had it written, which was briefly available as an Android app, but I had quality issues with the guys who developed it. So a new version is in the works, but it actually does that. And I'll tell you, I've done a lot of research on intuition and intuition in my mind is an altered state of consciousness. And it's one that's, that's teachable and trainable using neurofeedback. Great. Cool. Okay. So he also asks, what about spaced repetition flashcards, programs such as Anki or SuperMemo in terms of uh, learning and memory? You know, I am such a fan of the research that went into making space repetition flashcard programs. If you haven't heard of those before, there's a guy out there whose name I forgot, which is funny. And what he did is he realized that it turns out that if you want to remember something forever, he needed to see it 
every so often and that the amount of spacing between the number of times he saw it declined over time. So he came up with the perfect algorithm. Wired Magazine wrote about it. And it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. The only problem is it's for memorizing information. And honestly, memorizing? Bleh. I don't memorize anything. I put it into my model so I can think about it instead of memorize it. I'll tell you, I've never been good at memorizing things. I'm still not good at it. I'm good at knowing things, which is very different than memorizing. Yeah, so it sounds like there might be a difference between sort of what this guy is asking and maybe some of what you do. So is there? can you say a little bit more about the difference between rote memorization and being able to more fluidly use what you memorize or what you remember and what techniques, if any, work better for each type of memory? This comes down to you know, how do you think? And a lot of people have learned to memorize. In fact, the current education system really encourages you to memorize loads of crap that you're never going to use before. I mean, honestly, in a history class, memorizing what general did what on what date, in what battle, and in other just trivial pursuit sorts of things, it's a waste of human capacity from my perspective, especially because we can look any of that up on our smartphone. Like, why would you clog your brain with that stuff? What I would focus on and what I always have, much to the maybe the the stress that this caused my teachers, is I'd say, I really want to know why some jerk, I don't remember his name and I don't care what his name was, but why did he invade this country? It was all about the reason and the mechanics of it. So what works well for me, if I want to remember something, is I need to rewrite it. So you take notes, actually physical notes on paper. Typing kind of works, but not as well. And you just basically boil down a large piece of information to one or two sentences. The act of boiling it down and then writing it is what makes it stick. Or if you really want to just completely rock it, you teach. And I taught for five years at the University of California about cloud computing and networking things. I still know so much about that. It's the focus of, of my career and has been for a long time. But the teaching really helped me develop the skill of synthesizing a huge amount of information down into digestible nuggets and then putting those into that 3D picture I keep in my head, which is why I can talk to someone about the stuff that I've read and I can actually synthesize the info very quickly because it's all model-based. It's not memorization-based. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right, so this is using a different part of your brain uh, as well as your body. Are there any hacks for improving your hearing? Is there a difference between directional improvements or simply hearing no matter the volume? You know, hearing is a pain in the ass from my perspective. I've spent a lot of time on my hearing because I have an auditory processing disability. If you're like most people, you are able to automatically filter out background sounds using your brainstem. The lowest level parts of your brain, the reptilian brain that I talk about quite a bit, for me, I don't really do that. I filter sounds out consciously, which means I have to pay attention to all the sounds around me and what you're saying and then pick out what you're saying with the mammalian part of my brain. So it costs me more, which means in a really you know loud bar or something, I'll still hear what you're saying, but I get tired faster than the average person because my brain is actually working really hard at that. So I've looked a lot at improving hearing. And one of the things you can do is you can train the flexibility of your eardrums. And there's there's probably a whole three-hour conversation to be had about hacking your hearing with all the different things that I've worked on. But one of the coolest ones is called the Tomatis method. And Tomatis makes, is T-O-M-A-T-I-S. We'll put that in the show notes. He makes this really cool CD that has 
kind of like a bird song waterfall sound and a really annoying thing going zip, 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 zip up and down. And what it's doing is it's exercising your ears, basically the, the muscles inside your ears separately. That can help. And there's a whole bunch of other things you can do with different sounds at different times in your ears. And there's also a lot of quantification that you can do with an audiologist. Uh, for instance, my hearing is better than average, but I have a few gaps in my, in my hearing, just frequency ranges that I don't hear. And knowing that means you can train those frequency ranges up, much like you would use functional movement on your body. You can do functional hearing on your ears, and it's way cool. More about that in some other podcast. In some of the future podcasts, we'll cover some of the questions related to the talk you gave at the Quantified Self Conference about how to use sex to perform better. There sure are some fun ones in the blog. If you have questions for the podcast, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, or by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode. The show notes will be displayed on bulletproofexec.com, along with links to everything we talked about today. Dave, you ready for the biohacker report? Always. Welcome to the biohacker report. This is the part of the show where I bring you some of the latest research that caught my attention. The first study in today's biohacker report is called Paradoxical Sleep Deprivation Induces Muscle Atrophy. One of the things I just love about academic research is the fact that none of these guys could write a title ever. If they said, paradoxical sleep deprivation makes you weak, at least people would have paid attention. This study was brought to you by the Psychobiology Department at Federal University in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Basically, we already know that sleep loss can cause many different health problems, even like impaired glucose tolerance or an increased risk of infection and death. This new study, which they just published in the Journal of Muscle and Nerve, found that lack of quality sleep can also cause muscle wasting. Now, I like this study because being a bulletproof guy and talking about sleep hacking a lot, I'm always harping about sleep quality versus sleep quantity. You can waste a ton of time getting bad sleep. You want to get really good sleep for the right amount of time. Paradoxical sleep is named that way because it's the part of sleep that appears to be deep, but your brain is actually working really hard to consolidate memories and thoughts. If you interrupt that sleep, your catabolic hormones, the ones like cortisol, spike and your testosterone production drops. When you get too much cortisol and not enough testosterone, that's not exactly what you're trying to have happen when you're looking to, say, grow muscle or just stay healthy. This study looked at how disturbing paradoxical sleep affected muscle growth in rats. Uh, one group of rats was sleep deprived for 96 hours. Frankly, I don't even know how you do that for 96 hours. Doing that to humans, which who live a lot longer than rats, is really hard to do. I can't imagine in a, in a rat, maybe a modafinil. Just kidding. The second group was sleep deprived for 96 hours and then allowed to sleep as much as they wanted for the next 96 hours. The third group just got to sleep whenever they wanted. The rats who underwent sleep deprivation experienced muscle wasting, had the highest cortisol levels and the lowest testosterone levels. The group that got to sleep for another 96 hours after sleep deprivation partially recovered, but they still had smaller muscles than the rats that just slept like normal rats. Okay, so this was a rat study. But there are other studies that show similar results in humans. Lack of quality sleep doesn't just make you less bulletproof mentally, and it doesn't just make you lose years on your life, but it also decreases your muscle growth. 
So if you want to maintain or gain your muscle mass or just stay healthy, you should definitely give your body the quality of sleep it needs and the quantity. The next study in today's biohacker report was published in the Journal of Food Science and Agriculture, and it deals with the problem of mold toxins on Brazil nuts. Now, Brazil nuts are famous because they have selenium. And in fact, Tim Ferriss is a big fan of them in 4-Hour Body, and so are a lot of other people. And this is one of those mistakes people make in nutrition. People haven't kind of gone through the bulletproof thinking. They're saying, the nuts must be good because they have selenium. Yes, selenium is good for you. The problem is that the nuts are full of toxins, which means maybe selenium plus toxins is not what you wanted to take. Maybe you could have just taken a selenium capsule. But it turns out Brazil makes maybe 40% of the Brazil nuts in the world, and they've started to have more and more problems with avoiding mold from damaging the nuts. This is a major problem for farmers and consumers since many of the molds that grow on Brazil nuts make aflatoxin, which is one of the few mycotoxins we control for even in the US. It's one very closely tied to liver cancer and a host of other major health problems. It turns out that where Brazil nuts are grown can have a large impact on how much mold growth happens on them. So the researchers took samples from native rainforests and from urban areas, and they looked at mold toxin levels. They found mold on 95% of Brazil nut samples from both sites. Um, are you listening to this? If you eat Brazil nuts, you're eating mold. However, only the mold from the rainforest regions had enough toxins to be dangerous to humans. By the way, the standards of what's dangerous to humans are not based on what's actually dangerous to humans. They're based on what's economically advantageous to state. So I'll tell you, the safe limit on mold is as low as you can get it, which is why I don't recommend Brazil nuts on the Bulletproof diet. Anyhow, these guys came to the conclusion that the safe upper limit of aflatoxin in food for humans is legally set to 20 parts per billion. That is an incredibly small number. But the Brazil nuts from the rainforest had 472 parts per billion of aflatoxin, which is 23 times the safe limit. This was only one study, but it definitely shows you that mold toxins on Brazil nuts may be more of a problem than many people realize. If you're worried about mold toxins from Brazil nuts, don't eat them. Or if you simply must have your Brazil nut, be really selective about it. Don't choose any of them that look sick or diseased, even if they're on sale. In fact, if they're on sale, probably they're moldy and you shouldn't buy them. Never buy Brazil nut butter because they take the Brazil nuts that are damaged, which are almost certain to be moldy, and they blend those into the butter because they were too ugly to sell. Thank you for listening to today's Biohacker Report. I hope you'll listen in next week when we talk about how you can avoid cancer by eating the right fats and improve your brain function with high-intensity exercise. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. In the meantime, take a moment to leave us a ranking on iTunes. A positive ranking really helps people find the show, and it changes more lives. And by the way, thank you so much, because about two weeks ago, we hit number one ranking on iTunes in health and fitness. That's an amazing accomplishment, especially because we haven't done a podcast in the past, oh, two and a half months. We've had major production issues and some staff changes, and I'm really excited to be doing podcasts again, and you can count on these happening regularly with actually quality edits and just a much better standard of quality than you've seen on these before. 
I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye, Alexis. Bye, Dave. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.